Well, well thank, thank you for that way too kind introduction. I have to tell you, I love coming to speak to Christian colleges because I've been you. Uh, I went to a small Christian college, much smaller at the time. Lipscomb University is kind of bigger now, but when I went to Lipscomb, it was a much smaller college. And that's going to be important to my story. My, this chapel, the, the, the title of it is going to be uh, Love and a Time of Hate. And to begin to talk about the time of hate that we live in, I'm not just going to start and say, guess what? Americans kind of hate each other now. I'll get there. I'll get there. I've got a lot of statistics to back it up. We've got a lot of incidents to back it up. But I want to talk about what is the Christian response to hate. And I'm going to begin by talking about my first ever experience with hate and with fury and in the connection with politics. So as I said, I went to Lipscomb University a few years before now. I got into Lipscomb in 1987. 1987. That date is important because the very first club that I joined uh, at Lipscomb was the College Republicans. I joined the College Republicans in 1988. And those of you who remember history might remember that was a presidential race between George H.W. Bush and Michael Dukakis. And so we were very excited to try to help deliver the very key Lipscomb vote for George H.W. Bush. And Lipscomb was a pretty conservative place at the time. So um, it's not quite as conservative now. It was pretty conservative then, very conservative religiously. I'm not sure what all of your rules are, uh, but we had a curfew every night except Friday night. Every night at 11 p.m. we had to be in our dorms. Uh, Friday night we could really stay out until midnight. Uh, we had daily Bible, mandatory daily Bible classes. We had mandatory daily chapels. We did this every single day. I've heard hundreds of chapel talks. I remember one. Uh, and so I was coming from a very religiously conservative place. Um, no drinking, of course. No guys and, and girls dorms. No girls and guys dorms. Uh, no dancing. I mean, it was so strict on that count that RAs would drive through nights, uh, drive through downtown Nashville, looking at clubs and seeing if there were any Lipscomb parking stickers in the parking lot. And if there were, they would take down names. So uh, I went from there uh, to Harvard Law School. Don't ask me how I got in. Okay. Uh, I think there was some sort of weird rural Kentucky, I, that's where I grew up, rural Kentucky redneck diversity initiative of some kind. But I got in and I was very excited to go to law school because I come from a small town in Kentucky. I had gone to a small Christian college where basically everyone thought the same except for like five atheist students who their parents sent to the college to make sure that they converted them to Christianity. And, and so, so our, you know, our debate and discourse on religion with, with those students, we were just fascinated by them. You know, just fascinated by the atheist students and couldn't wait to talk to them because we weren't around that many people who really, truly disagreed with us. And we had all these great conversations with the atheist students like, what is it like to be going to hell? And, um, you know, the, your normal college conversation. And, and so I go to Harvard Law School and I cannot wait to get there. I'm, I'm intimidated out of my mind. I, I'll just be honest with y'all. I was intimidated out of my mind. I thought, I don't belong there. I don't know how I got in there. I don't, you know, this is, oh, I'm overmatched. And nothing about my early experience there uh, disabused me of that notion that I was overmatched. Uh, 
I, I, I had done well in high school academically. I had done well in college academically. And then all of a sudden, I'm around these people, and they're, they're Rhodes Scholars. One of the most intimidating days of my life was our beginning civil procedure classes in a classroom about this size, packed the gills with people. And everyone was nervous because we thought the teacher was going to begin with the Socratic method. And if you don't know what the Socratic method is, when you single out a student and you say, you there, name, tell me the facts of Smith versus Jones, and then the professor just grills you involuntarily until you fail miserably in front of everyone, and then they move on and grill somebody else. So this teacher thought, well, I'm going to do the kinder, gentler thing, and I'm going to begin by asking all 135 people in this classroom to introduce themselves. For one minute, you have one minute to introduce yourselves. So it's 135 Harvard students, and it quickly devolved into the resume contest, which I was probably the last one to come. And everyone had done these incredible things. Like after serving in the Peace Corps, I was in the consulate in Mali, and, and, and you just go on and on, and you're just thinking, I've done nothing. I've done nothing. I don't belong here. Came to the guy next to me, and I'll never forget this moment. He says, my name is Jim. Uh, I went to Yale for undergraduate. Uh, I went to, I believe he also said Yale for uh, a medical school. Uh, I served as a White House fellow in the Reagan administration. I then was a chief administrator at Massachusetts General Hospital. Uh, I then decided to run against Barney Frank for Congress, and I lost, and I didn't, I had some time, so I thought I'd come to law school. <laughs> And then it came to me next, and this was the only popular moment I had in my entire three years there. I said, my name is David French. I went to a school you've never heard of. I've done nothing, and the admissions committee has made a terrible mistake. That was my only popular moment. Um, because what happened next was I began to experience hatred. So people like to think of right now as a time of intolerance, as a time of political correctness, but this is, we're, what we're experiencing now is nothing new. There was a wave of intolerance that swept through Ameri the American Academy in the late 1980s and early 1990s. And I began to experience it when I formed a group, a pro-life student organization called the Society for Law, Life, and Religion. And so our goal in the Society for Law, Life, and Religion was to advocate for life and for religious liberty. Now, if you ever start your own student group, please think of the acronym. Uh, so for us, it was Society for Law, Life, and Religion, S-L-L-R, for, for the next 25 years of Harvard Law School was pronounced as slur. So I found a slur, and uh, one of the first things that we did is we sent out to the student body a letter. And it was a very simple letter. It was a very nice letter. I, wrote, I rewrote it three times to make it nicer each time. And that letter was describing a policy at Harvard, uh, the main campus and the law school, that said, although our mandatory student health services fee covers elective abortions, if you have a conscientious objection to abortion, you can write the school, and the school will refund that portion of your health services fee that covers abortion. So it's a good policy. It was a conscientious objection policy that Harvard had. It was a good policy, and I wanted to alert the three of us that should have given you a clue that we were in a minority situation. The three of us in a school of 1,400 who had founded this pro-life student group thought it would be good to alert the students of this policy and see if they could take advantage, how many would take advantage of it. So 
I did. Um, I wrote this letter. As I said, I made it. I did three drafts to make it nicer each time. And then I went and I, I printed off 1,500 copies. There was no email back then. And I hand-delivered all 1,500 copies into every student mailbox. And I made a mistake, though. At the bottom of the form, instead of saying, if you want to take advantage of this, fill the form out and send it to the health services office, I said, if you want to take advantage of this, fill it out, tear it off, and send it to me, David French, and I gave my box number and how to reach me. This was before I had uh, understood the truth of Calvinism, that uh, a man is totally depraved, and I still had some hope about human nature in my heart that was about to be quickly suppressed. And I distributed all these notes and then went uh, back to my dorm study, went to uh, classes the next day, and about mid-afternoon, I went and I to my box to see if anyone had responded. And sure enough, my box was jammed with paper, just jammed. Now, again, remember, this is before I knew the doctrine of total depravity, and I thought, I just tapped into the latent pro-life movement at Harvard Law School. I was wildly optimistic. And then I pulled out the first sheet of paper, and it said, why don't you go die, you bleeping fascist? The next one, go die. You're a fascist. It was almost as if talking points had been put out. In response to these pro-lifers, wish their death. Now, these were death aspirations. They were not death threats, okay? That death threat is, I'm going to kill you. A death aspiration is, I hope something does. I'm not going to do it, but I hope a bus does or a meteor. I hope something does. That's a death aspiration. So I don't want to exaggerate what I went through there. It was a death aspiration. And it was as if they put out talking points, provided death aspiration, called them a fascist, and used profanity in any combination of making points one and two. And that was my entree into malicious discourse around political, important political issues. When I would speak in class about mainly pro-life issues, I would often be shouted down. People would just start screaming. They would start yelling. And they would try to shout me down so that nobody could hear me. And as a Christian, there were, I had two kind of simultaneous responses. One was, okay, biblically, it's predicted that if you are upholding virtue, that the world will often reject you. And I believed that my advocacy for the unborn was a virtuous cause, that my advocacy for liberty was a virtuous cause. And so if you've studied your scripture, you know that the world does not always embrace virtuous causes, okay? It doesn't. So that was one thing that I realized. And then the other thing that I realized was this hatred was not making me rethink my position. It was actually entrenching me in my position. And it was also creating in me an interesting moral dilemma. Because what happened is, as I began to experience hate, I'm just a normal person. I'm not some sort of superhuman moral creature. It made me angry. It made me mad. How dare you try to suppress my point of view? How dare you try to silence me? And I had this sort of fleshly part of yourself, this sort of worldly part of yourself rebelling, and then it says, fight fire with fire. Because I'm right, and you're wrong, and not only you're compounding your wrongness by trying to suppress even my speech, 
and I had this temptation to anger. And I'm not going to say that I didn't give in to it. On occasion, I did. It was three long years of people trying to silence me, and I would on occasion give in to it. Sort of like um, if you've seen uh, Revenge of the Sith, or if you have seen uh, Return of the Jedi, and you have Darth Sidious or Empire, Emperor Palpatine there. Yes, give in to your hate. You know, there's something, there's always that voice inside of you that says, yes, get into your hate. Because in a short term, your hate, your anger empowers you. It fills you full of, of rage and fury, which quite frankly, when you're really angry, sometimes it can give you energy, it can give you a sense of purpose. But I also knew and I also realized that that was not the path. That was not the path. Uh, one of the things that I had done before I came to law school, because I was terrified, is I had done a ton of reading, just a ton of reading, Christian apologetics, you know, how to, how to win people over for Jesus, how to answer common objections about why Scripture was Scripture. Uh, I also did a lot of reading about politics and theology. And there was a verse that was just imprinted in my mind. It was just imprinted in my mind and it had to be imprinted in my mind and in my heart because I had such a temptation to depart from it. I had such a temptation to react to fury with fury. And that verse was Micah 6.8. What does the Lord require of you, O man? What is good? And it's to act justly, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with the Lord your God. Act justly, love kindness, walk humbly. Three interacting, interlocking virtues you must exhibit. Humility, kindness, and then the quest for justice. Each one of these three things works together. Each one of these three things must work together in your heart. And I have thought a lot about those virtues as I have seen what is happening in this country. And I'm going to ask you this question. As you look at the presence of Christians in the public square, especially the presence of Christians who are engaged in politics in the public square, are they characterized by Micah 6.8? Is Micah 6.8, is that characterize the public involvement of American Christians in politics? I'd say no. I'd say no. I'd say that what has happened in American Christianity is what we have done is we have decided that if we have a virtuous cause, whether it's life or it's liberty or it's racial justice, you name it, whatever the virtuous cause is, that it, that is the only thing that we must focus on. And that we define our virtue by whether or not we achieve that cause. In other words, our engagement is entirely defined by the what we seek, not how we seek it. Not how we seek it. And in fact, there are those who despise kindness as weakness. Kindness is weakness. The command to love your enemies or bless those who persecute you is discarded and reviled. Why? Because it doesn't work. It doesn't work. Because, you know, politics is rough. Politics is tough. Politics ain't beanbag is a phrase that you often hear. But the reality is these kinds of statements in the Bible are not tactics. It's not bless those who persecute you because it will make the persecution stop. Or love your enemies because it will make them not your enemies anymore. In other words, these are not tactics to pursue until they don't work. 
There are commands to pursue regardless of whether or not you see the results on this earth. There are commands, not tactics. And I had to remind myself in that time constantly of this reality. Constantly of this reality. And my goodness, do we need right now the Micah 6-8 framework. And let's go through it real quickly. Act justly. This is the easy part now. Act justly is I know what's right and I am pursuing what is right. And acting justly in our minds is even easier than it's ever been. It just takes some tweets. Like I can be an activist just by being on Twitter. Throw a few timely hashtags. Maybe something goes viral. Viral, my work is done. Act justly is the easy part in this highly polarized time because the two sides believe they have absolute virtuous ends and they're going to pursue them. But loving kindness, loving kindness, that's also an obligation. Right now in the United States of America, I said this early on, I said I've got stats, people hate each other. Like they hate each other. If you're talking about, and this goes back, this is a development that's been going on for a while. Let's go back to the Obama era in 2014. Um, in 2014, Pew, the Pew Foundation did some surveys on animosity between competing political parties. And, in these, and what Pew found is that about 82% of Republicans had strongly negative or somewhat negative assessments of random of Democrats. If all you knew that they were a member of the Democratic Party, about 82% of Republicans had either strong or serious distaste or dislike for Democrats, just knowing they're Democrats. The Democrats were a little bit more tolerant. Only 78% of them really had strong negative views of Republicans. Has it gotten better since 2014? No. It's gotten much worse. You now see a phenomenon where in some surveys people are more willing to have, see their son or daughter marry somebody of a different religion entirely than they are willing to see someone marry a person of a different political party. We are now in the grips of something called lethal mass partisanship. About several months ago, or about a year ago or so, um, some researchers just did some surveys where they asked people some pretty interesting questions. Not just do you like people on the right or on the left, some of the questions were, do you attribute inhuman characteristics to your political opponents? And significant minorities of Americans said yes. They view their political opponents as exhibiting inhuman or subhuman characteristics. They asked other questions, such as, would the world be better off if a significant number of your political opponents died? Now, again, a majority didn't say yes, but a significant minority said yes. They said yes. Think about that. You had a significant minority of Americans saying the world would be better off if some Democrats just died or Republicans just died. And the researchers coined a term for this. They called it lethal mass partisanship. Now, this research came out before the summer of riots and before the January 6th attack on the Capitol. And a lot of people said, oh, this is pearl clutching. This is alarmist. It's not that bad. Nobody's saying that now. Nobody's saying that now. And so what I would submit for us as Christians is that this is exactly our time to step into this culture as an alternative. This is exactly our time. Sadly, we have not done that because what has ended up happening with the Christian churches, sadly, we have not communicated to believers a theology of politics. We have communicated an object of politics. 
the, the object is um, overturning Roe v. Wade, or the object is protecting religious liberty, or the object is, you name it, whatever is the, the thing that you're taught, whether by activists or by news sites, about what, what Christians should be pursuing. We've been taught the object of politics, and that's how we view it. And how we get to the object, well, we're increasingly drifting towards the ends justify the means. And think how off course this is from the rest of our lives, how we're taught to engage in the rest of our lives. So let's say you're going into business, and you say, okay, uh, this gentleman here, he wants to run Pizza Planet. He's got a Pizza Planet shirt on. He wants to be the CEO of Pizza Planet. As a Christian, what is your goal as the CEO of Pizza Planet? As a Christian, if his answer was immediately to make as much money as humanly possible, you would think, hmm, you'd automatically know that he had not been trained very well in the idea of what it means to be a Christian businessman. Because it is not just making the most money, it is also a way of interacting with employees, with colleagues, a way of utilizing whatever gifts and assets that you have in that business, in, in your business success to glorify Jesus. We know this. Or what is your object as a student, as a Christian student? 4.0. Well, yeah, you want a 4.0 or whatever highest GPA you can get, but your existence on this campus should glorify Jesus Christ. From the moment you, and now we're all imperfect and we don't do it perfectly, but from the moment you get up and the moment you lay your head down, yeah, you want to pursue excellence academically, but you also want to pursue, uh, the, you want to pursue the glory and the, and the service of Jesus Christ. So we think of this all the time in other contexts, it's second nature. But in politics, we often find that exhibiting Christian virtues, again, as I said, it, in the course of pursuing justice is seen as ridiculous. It's seen as naive. It's seen as naive. It's seen as cowardly. It's even seen as cowardly. I was the subject of this really weird uh, online attack in 2019 um, called, very subtly, uh, Against David Frenchism. It was the name of an essay that was written. And what was wrong with David Frenchism? Uh, let me just say, sometimes you don't want to be an ism, okay? So what was wrong with David Frenchism? Well, I had three big problems. So I'm going to just tell you all my big problems. Number one is, the most important was I defended the classical liberal order of the American founding. We don't have to go into all that. We will in my class at exhausting length. But I defended the classical liberal orders of the, the classical liberal values of the founding. Number two, I didn't perceive politics as war and enmity. That was my problem. I did not perceive politics as war and enmity. And my third problem was there, because I didn't perceive politics as war and enmity, I saw values like civility and decency as, as mandatory rather than second order. The civility and decency in an atmosphere of war and enmity are second order values. And so, and so I mounted as best as I could a spirited defense of basic civility and decency, and time and time and time again, I was called naive, I was called weak, I was called cowardly. But what kept imprinting on my mind was Micah 6, 8. What does the Lord require of you, O man? What is good is to act justly, love mercy, and to walk humbly. Act justly, love mercy, walk humbly. We've talked about justice. 
trying to find and do the right thing. We've talked about kindness, treating people with basic levels of dignity and respect. Let's talk, talk very briefly about the last one. Let's talk about walking humbly. What does that mean in politics? I think you start with three words. You start with three words when you're walking humbly in politics. Because politics deals with big issues, deals with weighty issues. We've got in the audience today somebody who's dealt with big, weighty issues, and I think you'd agree with me that when you're talking about things like how do you deal with geopolitical struggles in the Middle East, or how do you try to um, how do you try to uh, stimulate an economy in recession without causing fiscal catastrophe, there are three words that would come to mind. This is hard. This is hard. It is hard to know what to do in the Middle East. It is hard to know how to achieve racial justice and reconciliation in the United States. It is hard to figure out how to end abortion. This is hard. And that's, those words, once you those come out of your mouth, what do they imply? They imply that I don't necessarily know all the answers. I don't necessarily know all the answers. But here's what I've also found. Those words are, can be, not always, can be disarming. They can be disarming. You can walk into volatile situations where people are deeply entrenched in your positions, and you can begin like this. You can say, I agree with you that we need to achieve real change to diminish the amount of police brutality in the United States of America, and I want to hear ideas because this is hard. And it can be incredibly disarming. It can be incredibly disarming. It can actually be, dare I say, effective at starting to achieve change. And so what I would ask you to do, what I would ask you to do is as you are thinking and forming your political ideology, whether you're on the right or whether you're on the left, is imprint Micah 6.8 on your heart. Politics isn't just about achieving justice. That's not the whole thing. It's not just about a what, it's about how. Act justly, love mercy, walk humbly. And I'm going to end with this. And, and uh, one thing that I think that you have to do as you walk in that manner through your political life, through your life in general, because this is not just a principle confined to politics, is you have to remember that the success of your cause does not rest with the power of your own self, of your own flesh. God is sovereign. God is sovereign. Now, I'll tell you a little story about how that was brought home to me in this same experience in law school. I uh, remember I said that I read all these apologetics books so that I had every answer. You want to talk to me about why we have these specific books in the New Testament? I had the answer. I've forgotten it, but I had the answer then, okay? If you want to talk about, like, you, you name it, what, whatever sort of common challenge, I was ready for the debate. And then we had those debates late at nights in dorm rooms, and nobody cared, nobody was moved. It was just sort of an academic exercise. I brought every bit of persuasive power I had to bear, and it was just this academic exercise. And nobody, you know, nobody at this dropped to their knees and said, now that I understand the canon, I confess my love for Jesus Christ. Nothing like that ever happened. I tried, you know. But one day we had a new uh, student come to our law school Christian fellowship, a brand new believer. And 
everyone swarmed her. Like, like, how did you become a believer? How did you find out about us? It was so exciting. And, and she said, well, it's the strangest thing. I was walking through Harvard Yard, and you know how there's that crazy uh, street preacher like, like that kind of hangs out at the gate, and we're like, yeah, 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 yeah. It's one of these people that just yells and yells. Well, I walked by him, by him, and he yelled, Jesus loves you. And immediately I thought, he's right. I was like, wait, okay, and? No, that's the story. That's the story. That the power of God intervened through those three words. Now, I'm not going to sit here and say, here's your, here's your way to be an apologetic evangelist, is to stand in the corner and yell, Jesus loves you. But what it says is that we in our own flesh, no matter how persuasive we try to be, we can never forget how the power of God. I'll tell you another quick story, because I've got two minutes. About a year later, we had a new student come in. She was from a village outside of Beijing. And we, there's about 35, 40 of us in this Christian fellowship. And we always felt embattled and persecuted in a minority. And she walks in the door, and she sees us, and she bursts into tears. Like tears are streaming down her face. And we were, what, what's happening? What's wrong? And she said, I've never been around so many Christians at one time. And that put some things into perspective. Here we were feeling embattled and everything. And then we asked her how she became a Christian. She said, well, I used to meditate a lot. And I would lay outside of my, outside when it was nice weather, outside of my small house, and I would look at the stars and I would meditate. And one evening I heard a shortwave radio broadcast and I heard the name of Jesus. And when I heard the name of Jesus, I knew immediately who I'd been talking to my whole life. And I thought, well, they're going all my apologetics books again. But what it taught me, once again, is this battle we have is not against flesh and blood. And our chief instrument and our chief weapon in this battle is a sovereign God of the universe. And so when we see his commands to act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly, our duty isn't to follow them unless, we, unless and until we see them work or not work. Our duty is to follow them and hope and in faith and trust, regardless of whether we see them work or not work. And so let me just go ahead and apologize in advance because some of you guys might be in my class and it's going to be four hours a day for three straight days, so we're going to get sick of each other really fast. But if you're not in my class, you just heard most of it. Until tomorrow, we're going to talk about uh, truth in a time of lies. But thank you so much for hosting me.